to Sharp Talk. Uh, this is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Jean-Claude Pérez. Jean-Claude Pérez ran the legal service of the Council of Ministers of the European Union for 23 years and had a key hand in drafting all the EU treaties that were implemented during those 23 years. Jean-Claude, we did our last podcast back in January this year where you very much wanted us to talk about the transition that the UK government would have to negotiate with EU27 as part of the Article 15 Brexit uh, broader negotiations. Fast forward several months, the British government has finally caught up with you, and in the past three or four weeks, the government has, seems to have acknowledged that it has to have some kind of transition uh, agreement with EU27. From your perspective, what is the, the rationale for the UK to have such a transition? Well, it, is, uh, it was quite obvious for EU lawyer that uh, a transition was unavoidable. Why? Because Article 50 is about exiting the European Union. And any agreement with a country leaving the European Union and the European Union for the future relations between them have to take uh, effect, to be negotiated, signed and taking effect after the Brexit, after the exit of this country. So it was sure from the beginning that first there is to negotiate an agreement on the basis of Article 50 with the rules which are provided for uh, by the treaty, and then, only then, you can negotiate something which will take place sooner or later, but afterwards, not in the same time. That was always impossible. And it is why I am really amazed by what happens in the UK uh, since uh, years. Amazed by? I, I am amazed by the politicians. Because I know the civil servants in the UK and I know they know all that. Right. And I'm sure they are loyal with their government and I'm sure they have said that to the government and they did not believe it. And now they are coming uh, with uh, one news every month. Oh, they have discovered that EEA is this and that and it's very difficult. Oh, we have discovered that uh, custom union is this and that. and It, it is amazing. I am appalled, I am sad for the United Kingdom because all this they knew already, at least the civil servants knew and I am sure they have said to the governments. Well this question as you know is called sequencing in the jargon, in, the jargon. in other words that the, the UK E27 have to agree first of all or make sufficient progress on the budget bill, the divorce bill, the, uh, the, the rights of EU citizens in the UK, UK citizens in the EU and the, the border, hard border between Ireland and, the, and, and the Northern Ireland uh, before any other kind of discussion take place on a future trading relationship. Does that, how does that impact, therefore, this sequencing debate on discussions about a transition? Well, that's slightly different. That's a political point of view, the sequencing. Because, of course, when I said that no agreement can take place for the future relations, trade or otherwise, between the two parties, I did not say that you could not discuss about it uh, immediately. Okay. That's a political question they could discuss immediately. The EU said, uh, of course, they are in a position of strength, and they said, no, we will not discuss the future. Nevertheless, we could not agree formally on something before the two years, before you are an external country, but we will not discuss that now because we have to discuss what is provided for in the treaty, the exit. And exit, they have chosen the three most important subjects, uh, Ireland, the, the citizens and uh, uh, Monet. Yeah. And they say, well, you have to prove that you are serious. 
if you are not serious, we'll not discuss the future now. So please tell us, and they have kept uh, leverage, uh, not being too precise and say sufficient progress on these three items. But if you look at these three items, nothing happened up to now. Yeah. They are still thinking in London about crazy things. For example, no border between Ireland, uh, the Ulster and the air. That's stupid, of mm. course. You must have a border. They have to recognize that. They were now, they admit that there will be something to pay. Uh, but that everybody knew that beforehand. And they were spending months and months saying, we will not pay one penny and so on and so forth. This is ridiculous. Of the different scenarios out there, I find it striking that even after 14 months after the, the UK uh, had its uh, referendum uh, last year on withdrawal of the, from the European Union, these four narratives seem to be still equally um, powerful. One is a, um, a, a no-deal Brexit. We, just, we storm out of the negotiation, the UK does, without any deal on the table. Secondly, a hard Brexit, where we leave the single market, the customs union, and all the things that are pertaining to that. Thirdly, a soft Brexit, where there's some kind of, almost like some close relationship, short of actual membership of the EU. And of course, uh, no Brexit at all. There's some kind of change of heart. Of those rather simplistic four scenarios, which do you think at the moment is the most likely outcome? Well, frankly speaking, uh, the one which has my preference is no Brexit is to come back on Article 50. And as you know very well, Paul, I have written uh, an op-ed in the Financial Times saying that legally it is possible for the UK to say we change our mind. Can I, this, pick, can I pick you up on that yeah, one? Because you please. know, quite recently on this, on this triggering Article 50 and revoking, the European Commission recently put out a, a fact sheet uh, where it's, the question is, once triggered, can Article 50 be revoked, I'm quoting. And the answer of the Commission is it was the decision of the United Kingdom to trigger Article 50, but once triggered, it cannot be unilaterally reversed. Uh, after Article 50 does not provide for the unilateral withdrawal of the notification, how do you react to that? I react to that by saying that legally I don't change my mind. I think the treaty is, uh, is written maybe not very well on this Article 50, you know, that is, uh, but uh, it means that if everything stops before the two years, we are in the statu quo sante, and then the UK can withdraw its intention to leave. But I understand politically very well, because you know my job was half political, half legal, and I understand very well my uh, colleagues in both legal services of the Commission and the Council to say, but if we accept that, the UK will say, well, we negotiate and they try to negotiate something else better and then they withdraw again Article 50 and then back and so on. So playing so, for time. Yeah, yeah. To play for time. And that's, I agree with them. So it's why they said we need the unanimous vote of the, the 27 and the European Council. Well, this can be if ever it happened. I don't think it will happen politically, unfortunately, in the UK. But if it happens, there will be an agreement of some sort in order to forbid UK to come back to Article 50 after a while. Okay, then to go back to these four scenarios that I sketched out, uh, a no-deal Brexit, a hard Brexit, a soft Brexit, or no Brexit, which is, as we speak now, in August 2017, which do you think at the moment is the most likely outcome? Well, I thought, uh, even a few months ago, that we could have a hard Brexit finally, but a transition period of, let's say, three years where things will continue as they are now 
and then the hard brake seat will have a very very soft landing which soft landing will be very helpful for all economic operators both in the EU and the UK very helpful for the poor civil servants in the UK who have yeah. so much to do and uh, for, for, for everybody it will be uh, the, the, the less bad solution I don't believe in a soft Brexit because uh, Brexit, it's inherent. So I, I understood Mrs. May in a way to say Brexit is Brexit, means Brexit. Because Brexit, uh, you cannot belong to the internal market uh, at half. Right. You have to be completely in with the Court of Justice, participating with your compatriots in the European Council, in the Council, in the European Parliament. If not, you cannot. And therefore membership of the EA, the European Economic Area, for you is not an option, it's not a solution. No, it's an option. We, I have studied three years ago in details and uh, uh, you cannot have that. First, uh, uh, you know that all decisions, decision making in the EA is, you have to take decision, the three together. Right. Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland. Right. If you add UK, that thing, UK will depend on decisions made by Liechtenstein, mm. on very heavy legislation to take back and so on. And you will have all decisions made by the EU, you, you have the obligation to take. Uh, that's ridiculous. The UK cannot accept that. It's, uh, it's the worst situation for the UK politically. Okay, let's move briefly then to the EU27 side. Since you live in Brussels and you have very many high-level contacts in the institutions and, and member state capitals, what is what's the current mood, you think, amongst our EU partners, E27, towards the, the UK's uh, approach to the negotiations? My feeling is they are fed up. Right. They are fed up because uh, it takes so much time for opening the eyes of people uh, having the authority to decide in the UK. This being said, I think there are reasonable people, both uh, in the EU and in the uh, UK. So I don't say we will not find a period of transition reasonable to go to what is going to be a hard Brexit anyway. And we will avoid the, the cliffage. Right. I don't say that. And I don't know between the two solutions, but I'm more and more concerned and more and more sad. Right. <laughs> what you said, what to finish off then, um, you said just now, I introduced you first of all as a, as a legal expert, which you clearly are, but then you said quite rightly that you're, in your 23 years in the council, you were as much a political animal as you were a legal animal. So in terms of the politics maybe going forward now, as opposed to the, the legal niceties of, uh, of the negotiations, do you see any signs at, 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 at heads of government level that a so-called political solution somehow could be found to um, the current situation or was that very naive? Well, people have to realize in the UK that Brexit is not the first preoccupation of the 27 heads of state and government. Right. It's not the first preoccupation. Now the first preoccupation is, will Germany, after the elections and France, agree on some guidelines to strengthen the Eurozone? And will that be with all members of the Eurozone or less members? These are the, the questions, and immigration, of course, but not uh, Brexit. So Brexit, if it's possible to have a period of transition, they will be very happy. If it's not, they will not uh, uh, shoot in their feet in order to have a solution. Well, maybe a final, final question. But do you see no signs then of the beginnings of a, a, a more Europe-wide debate, maybe kicked off by Mrs. Merkel if she's re-elected, or even Mr. Schulz and, uh, and uh, Emmanuel Macron? 
to address issues about such things as free movement of, of, of people, which is obviously a very vexed issue in the context of, of the UK situation, but there are other member states who are also worried about immigration as well, intra-EU immigration. You don't see signs of a, of a pan-European debate on EU reform that might have some impact on the, on the, on the tenor of the EU negotiations with the United Kingdom? I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. I, I, they will not transform the EU only to please the, the, the UK. They have major problems. They have also a major problem, Poland and Hungary, as you know, but they will not be solved uh, like that. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Jean-Claude Perez, thank you very much for your time.